This is Yehi Shalom, Yehi Shalom, a prayer for peace. I hope you'll join me. You know this one? It's a good day in Israel. It's a good day in Israel. Um, you know, that democracy works, um, regardless of what parties people like. Democracy works. It makes history that there is an, an Arab party in the Israeli government. I mean, most countries in the world couldn't do that that aren't, aren't, aren't Muslim countries, um, countries in Europe. That, that's, that's interesting and such a broad coalition. So it is an interesting time to celebrate democracy uh, in Israel, even if it's an imperfect governmental co coalition. I mean, no, no government coalition by its nature is perfect. Um, but uh, someone, nobody should be in power for more than 12 years in a democracy. So, uh, so that, is a, that is a good thing. And as I shared today, friends, debate number 10, I have a very short presentation, probably half the size of usual, so we can get to an interesting conversation here. Let's start with a poll. Let's start with a poll. Should humans have been created? A debate between angels and God. Should humans have been created? Number one, humans are amazing the pinnacle of existence to be loved and celebrated. So if you're a, a human lover, if you're a lover of humans, as if that is like offensive or something, like a tree hugger or something, then you should check the first box. Humans do some harm, but so much good, so much more good than harm. Um, then check that box. If you um, believe humans cause so much harm, but it's unfortunately necessary for the free will of human enterprise in checkbox three. And if you believe humans are despicable, destructive, and fundamentally selfish, you're a human hater, then checkbox four. Again, human lover, number one, human hater, number four. You, number two, more harm than good. Number three, more good than harm. Let's see where you fall out. I guess because I'm a co-host, I can't vote today. I always try to skew the vote by putting my own vote in, but... Um, uh, we're going to give you another second. Okay, here we go, Pam. We can end the voting now. Let's see what we got. Are you not seeing the share poll results? Oh, is everybody seeing it? Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay, so no one here is a human lover. No one here is a human hater. I know. I'm just being. I'm just. I'm just joking. I'm sure we all love humans, or at least some of them. Um, uh, but 43% humans do some harm, but so much good, okay? And 57% humans cause so much harm, but it's unfortunately necessary for the free will of hum the human enterprise. Okay, very interesting. Thank you, friends. Thank you, friends, for, um, uh, for joining.
and let's let's jump in here. We're gonna, by the way, we're gonna end five minutes early today. We're gonna end at 1055 Pacific. That's uh, 12, uh, 155, uh, 155 Eastern. Okay, here we go. Angels versus God. What a debate, what a debate. Angels versus God. As we saw in our first debate, Hillel and Shammai argue about whether it is ultimately good or bad that humans were created. Let's remind ourselves of this debate from the Talmudic tractate of Eruvin. Our rabbis taught for two and a half years were Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel in dispute. The former asserting that it was better for people to not have been created, and the latter maintaining that it was better for people to have been created than not to have been created. They finally took a vote and decided that it was better for people to have not been created than to have been created. But now that they have been created, let them investigate their past deeds, or as others say, let them examine their future actions. Okay. So fascinating, fascinating debate from Hillel and Shammai. Very interesting that they vote because why would you vote on something that's not normative? There's no prescriptive, there's no prescription here. It's voting on the past. How can you vote on the past? Um, I guess it's, it's, it's almost like taking a poll, but they vote, okay. It was better that humans not be created. Again, we don't know what they mean by that. Are they saying humans suffer more than feel joy? Are they seeing humans destroy more than they build up? Are they saying um, that humans are, are um, the enterprise uh, didn't live up to its aspirations? In any case, they say better we weren't created, but now that we were, let us be reflective. Let us grow, let us engage in teshuva, in a, a redirection, a correction of our, of our process. In a similar vein, at the conclusion of the vidui of the confession, a prayer well-known from the Yom Kippur Machzer, the High Holiday Prayer Book, and used in prayer at other times as well. We recite, my God, before I was created, I was not worthy. Now that I was created, it is as if I were not created. I am in dust in my life, all the more so in my death. I am before you as a vessel filled with shame and embarrassment. So we struggle at the end of life. Vidui is said not only on Yom Kippur. Some people recite it before sleep each night. But obviously, most obviously, they say, Rabbi, come visit my parent. They're about to die or whoever. And, and you recite the Vidui with someone dying on their, on their deathbed. So this idea of what was my life just now? Whoa, what just happened? That I was like a child yesterday. My wedding day was yesterday. Now I'm on my deathbed. Like, where did that journey of life just go? And now all of a sudden I'm saying like, what just happened? My existence is fleeting and I was created and now I feel my, my, uh, my, my life breath passing and um, was it good that I existed at all? What was this? What was this experience? This quote from the liturgy can be viewed not only as self-flagellation but also as a reformulation of the debate of Hillel and Shammai. Perhaps when we say vidui, we are asking ourselves, now that I have sinned, now that I cannot live up to what God expects of me and what I should expect of myself, would it have been better had I not been created in the first place? What a, what a powerful um, reflection. Um, you know, as we saw, the greatest sages themselves doubt themselves when they're dying. What a strange life to say, I die with no regrets. I have lived the perfect life to my total fulfillment. Like, what, what, what hubris, would, uh, who would have such hubris at the end of their, end of their life? 
um, in such a state of vulnerability, uh, but rather to say, geez, like, was my life worth it? All the power and privilege I had in my life, like, did I really actualize that or did I enjoy some daiquiris? Okay, nothing wrong with daiquiris, but, but was my life really about daiquiris or was my life really about serving some, some higher calling? And what exactly are Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel debating here in the first place? Whether there's more pain or joy in human experience, whether humans give or take more from the world, whether humans are more virtuous or more wicked at their core, we can never know for sure, of course, but each prism is worth considering. And the conclusion is fascinating. We can't know with any degree of certainty what would be better, but we can know what we must do. Teshuva, a world, excuse me, a word which literally means to return, but which has come to refer to the process of self-reflection and growth. How many people don't even build that into their life? Okay, we go change our flat tire, I buy a coffee, I do some work, but did we build into our agenda reflecting? Like, who am I? What am I doing today? What is, my be what is at the core of my being today? After all, according to the Talmudic rabbis, teshuvah was one of the concepts that existed before this world, as it was when, it, when the world was created. It says here in Pesachim, it was taught seven things were created before the world was created. And these are they. The Torah. Oh, what do you mean? I thought Torah is Mount Sinai. No, Torah exists before the world. Repentance, Teshuvah. How can Teshuvah exist before the human enterprise? What do you mean? It's about free will and change and growth. Oh, conceptually, ontologically, it exists before humans. The Garden of Eden. Wait a minute. The Garden of Eden exists before the world is created? What's that mean? Gehenna, hell, the throne of glory, the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, and the name of Mashiach, the name of Mashiach. Okay, this is a very fascinating theological text. We're not going to unpack it, but we can just sit with it, maybe return to it. The idea that ontologically there is existence before existence. There is yesh before yesh. There is something before something. Rabbi Adin Steinsoltz adds here, the implication of this remarkable statement is that teshuvah is a universal primordial phenomenon. It is embedded in the root structure of the world. Before we were created, we were given the possibility of changing the course of our lives, right? Amazing, right? It's almost like, think of a baby in the womb. Um, the baby in the womb, like before that baby comes out of the womb, before that baby is born, that, um, that fetus has the potential to already be something different than she is, right? She doesn't even exist, but her potentiality is already, is already in existence. The rabbis explain that humans were literally born already with a consciousness, indeed in essence, in need of repair. Here's what it says in Midrash uh, Bereshit Rabbah. And God created man uh, from dust, from the earth. Rav Brechia and Rav Chalbo, in the name of Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman said, he was created from the place of his Kapara, of his atonement, right? Like Yom Kippur, Kapara. As it says, make me an altar of earth. God said, let me make him from the place of his atonement, and hopefully he will endure. Now, this is very interesting. This is very, very interesting that the dust of the earth that Adam comes from is emerging from the dust of Kapara, right? The dust of atonement. Here, you know, friends, I want to take a little tangent for a moment. Because here I want to talk about human essence. Human essence. You know, today it's very popular in post-modernity 
to say everything is a social construct, right? We live in multiple, multiple socially constructed worlds, different theories of reality, different theories of truth. There is no reality. There is no truth. It's, we're postmodern. In modernity, there's truth, there's reality. We can, we can through reason and rationale, embrace such a, such a common sphere. And yet there is a debate among progressive activists, among everyone, philosophers, but let's take the progressive activist scene for a moment. Is my, is my social identity natural and essential to me, or is it purely a social construct? Let me give an example how activists go both ways. Let's say you are trans. Uh, no, no, no. Let's say you. Let's say you are. Yeah, let's say you're trans. You might say, um, you know what? My, um, uh, I was not. Uh, uh, I was not born with an essence. I truly am a woman born into a man's body. Um, uh, and, and in fact, uh, no, actually, I do have an essence. I am a woman fundamentally born into a man's body. Um, my gender is essential to me as opposed to someone else who says gender is a social construct, right? In fact, Judith Butler herself says that one's sex is a social construct, not only one's gender, but one's sex. I mean, that's a pretty radical position, um, you know, that one's sex is also a social construct. But also there was, there was a woman, uh, I, I have to, I, I'm forgetting her name, but I can circle back. She says, I famously, she said, I'm born black. She's a black woman. She says, I was born black. What she's saying is black is not my social construct that people assign to me. Like you assigned my gender, you assigned my race. I am in my essence different as black, right? Or I am Mexican. Like well, Mexican is not just where I was born. It's not a nationality. It's not a social construct you impose on me. Like in my soul, I'm Mexican, right? Or I'm a Jew. Am I a Jew in my soul? Or is that kind of just my culture? Is that my culture? So there's an interesting debate here around essence. What is my essence? Um, and what is, what is a social construct? And of course, Ontologically, we don't deny matter, but as soon as we embrace theory construction and start giving names and identities to such matter, there we're in the realm of construction. Think, for example, of someone who says, well, you can't deny that a planet exists. Rabbi, are you such a relativist? You're gonna say a planet doesn't exist? I'll show it to you on my telescope, right? But for example, we just denied Pluto. We just denied Pluto, why? Because we said part of what it means to be a planet is that you dominate your sphere. If you don't dominate your sphere in the outer space, in your galaxy, then you are no longer a planet. And once we realized that Pluto didn't dominate its sphere, we said, oh, you're no longer a planet. And so what is that? It's sort of, it's, it's inherently a social construct, just like someone dominating their neighborhood, right? Gives them a social authority. Pluto is no longer a planet because we realized it didn't dominate its neighborhood, right? And so even things that feel objectively clear, like don't tell me a planet's not a planet. So, Actually, we just dethroned a planet, right? Okay, so humans could, could only survive because God decided to create a world built not only on justice, but also on mercy. Rashi writes here on Bereshit Rabbah, in the beginning, it was God's intention to create the world with the divine attribute of strict justice, of din. But God perceived that the world would not endure and so God preceded it with the divine attribute of mercy, of, uh, of rachamim, and joined it with the divine attribute of strict justice. That is the meaning of that which is written on the day the Lord God made heaven and earth. You know, friends, um, there are so many ways that I think Jewish activism can shape um, the social justice sphere. 
But one of them is this idea right here, that the social justice fear by and large is about justice, right? You, you take someone down, you ruin their reputation, you fight, you fight the man, so to speak, right? You take someone down to win. It is about justice, right? No justice, no peace, right? But here we see the idea here that God couldn't create a world on justice, right? Justice is crucial, but the world only endures through mercy. And so how does your justice activism also bring mercy with it? How do we think about bringing compassion and love into our work for social change alongside accountability um, and, um, and, and the desire for strict justice? And do we even oppose such, do we even allow such high standards of justice and accountability for ourselves that we impose upon others in the press and in, and in positions of authority? Um, the way the way that people are um, are perceived and, and treated as public figures. So we are told that the angels were rather jealous. Here we get to our debate of angels versus God. Um, excuse me, angels versus humans. The angels are jealous and perhaps infuriated, as it were, when humans were created in the image of God. Thereby, the angels debated with God. It says here in the Zohar Hakodesh. I hope you're all over forty. You're not allowed to learn the Zohar until you're forty, friends. Okay, we're in trouble here because I'm 39 for another two weeks. <laughs> so uh, I'm not supposed to be learning the Zohar. So I'm going to pretend like we're, we fast forward two weeks. Just kidding. I think uh, everyone could learn the Zohar. Um, but that is the traditional idea that you don't, you're not allowed to learn the Zohar until you're 40. When the Hakadosh Baruch Hu desired to create humanity, as it, as it is said, let us make humanity in our image. We, he wanted to create him above the celestial beings. The angels came to accuse humanity saying, what is humanity that you should remember it? And the child of humanity that you should be mindful of it for they will sin before you in the future. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to them, if you were brought down to earth below, you would have sinned much more than them. Oh, what a, what a defense attorney we have. The angels say, "No, you're going to create humans? Like, look at these horrible creatures. They're going to kill each other, rob each other, hurt each other. They're going to, like, spend their time on social media. Oh, God forbid. You know, they're going to, like, you know, go have cake at night and then, like, watch, uh, you know, reality TV. And then 12% of them are going to get their facts about the world from reality TV. You know, these are the people. Are the, you know, and then God says, if I send you down there, you do even worse, Right. You, you know, you're not going to elect, uh, you know, this person as president. You're going to elect this person as president if you were the if you were the ones in charge, right? Um, the, you're, you know, the things that you would be capable of. And so, and so friends, uh, this is very interesting. So God sides with, sides with humans, which is already fascinating because angels don't have free will in Jewish theology. So what does this even mean that angels would do worse? In any case, um, um, I love this. And here is, here, is, here is the debate. And so how fascinating that God sides with humanity over the angels. How can it be that angels would sin more than humans? It is normally explained that animals, don't, as animals do not have free will, but only obey their animalistic instinct. And angels are also not free, but only obey their divine commands. But humans, on the other hand, have both the animalistic instinct and the divine command, as well as the freedom to choose one from the other. It remains unclear then how angels would have failed more than humans. But God is clear in imparting to the angels that the humans are doing better than they would. So let us first examine the question from a vantage point of self-interest. On average, 
Do humans experience more joy or suffering? Of course, there are some who are born into a life of misery, and there are others that live a life full of luxuries and pleasures. But on average, what is the human condition? <coughs> Again, we cannot know for sure, but we do know that while some global problems are getting worse, we are also experiencing significant global progress in healthcare, technology, access to education, cooperation to prevent warfare, even if we must recognize that debates about access to health care are frequent and heated. Technological advancements have led, too much too much, led to too much strife. The con content of education is a topic of much contention, and war happens all too frequently. Harvard professor Steven Pinker argues that we're witnessing a huge reduction in global violence but he warns this trend could reverse itself if we don't manage it properly. He said, he writes in The Better Angels of Our Nature Why Violence Has Declined. Substantial reductions in violence have taken place and it is important to understand them. Declines in violence are caused by political, economic, and ideological conditions that take hold in particular cultures at particular times. If the condition, conditions reverse, violence could go right back up. So it's not inevitable. In fact, when we did a recent VBM interview with him last month, he himself restated this important point that while the trends have consistently been towards a reduction of violence, that it is most certainly not inevitable. Violence is, of course, only one form of human suffering among so many others. There are reasons to think that things could get a lot worse due to climate change and environmental destruction, the spread of pandemics, cyber warfare, and many other major threats. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg wrote, the Holocaust was an advance warning of the demonic potential in modern culture. <clears throat> the strain of evil, evil is deeply embedded in the best potentials of modernity. At this moment, if you are born into destitute poverty in the global South, without access to healthcare, clean water, proper food, education, or any social mobility, it isn't hard to say that pain is likely higher than pleasure. If you're born into 21st century um, America, relative wealth with access to healthcare, a home, clean water, a fridge full of food, a car, a job, other luxuries, it is likely that pleasures exceed pains. In short, there is no simple answer to whether humans experience more happiness or suffering, more pleasure or pain, as human experience is highly relative and highly volatile and is constantly evolving as new solutions and challenges emerge. And we should be sure not to measure pleasure and pain in purely hedonistic terms. Professor Peter Singer writes, the way of thinking I have outlined is a form of utilitarianism, but not the version of utilitarianism defended by classical utilitarians like Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and Henry Sidgwick. They held that we should always do what will maximize pleasure or happiness and minimize pain or unhappiness. This is hedonistic utilitarianism. The term hedonist comes from the Greek word of pleasure. In contrast, the view we have reached is known as preference utilitarianism because it holds that we should do what on balance furthers the preferences of those affected. Some scholars think that Bentham and Mill may have used pleasure and pain in a broad sense that allow them to include achieving what one desires as a pleasure and the reverse as a pain. <coughs> if this interpretation is correct, 
the difference between preference utilitarianism and the utilitarianism of Bentham and Mill disappears. <coughs> so friends, <clears throat> when I think of a great Shabbos, a great Shabbos, I don't just think of, oh, a nice glass of Cabernet, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, a nice glass of, of Merlot. I don't just think about, oh, my children have fallen asleep and there's a little bit of, of, of silence. I don't just think, um, you know, of what it means to, um, you know, uh, uh, have a great piece of barbecue tofu. I know you're all craving it at this moment. I know you. I know you. You say, "I wish I had barbecue tofu right now." Right, but <laughs> but I also think, what would it be like to have great conversation? What would it be like to spiritually realign myself? What would it be like to talk about Jewish ideas with friends? Right, and so the the the, the more the, the more elevated preferences we have beyond just um, good food or, or good sensations. But friends, do humans take more or give more from the world? And here we're moving towards our conclusion. Here it seems clear that by and large, and push back on me if you disagree, humans take far more. We are the only ones who kill animals in mass for food, even when we're not hungry. Other animals kill an animal when they want it, when they're hungry. They don't just kill in mass. Right? We are the only ones destroying the planet. We are the only ones committing genocide. It is easy to fall into a psychological trap where one believes that someone else's loss can still be my gain. We are different people, and what matters for some is what I have, I. But Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, better known by his acronym, the Ramak, argued that the boundaries of the self and the others are morally blurred. He's one of those people who would probably love that we have no picture of him, just his kever, just his grave to, uh, to show him. Um, there's many modern rabbis who never wanted a picture of them. I once met a Hasidic Rebbe, and he said, oh, don't take a picture. And then he agreed to take a picture. He said, but don't share it with anyone, you know? And, uh, um, and so, you know, I think the Ramak would, would like that all we have is his burial place. He, he writes here, in everyone, there is actually a part of, of their fellow their fellow person, and therefore a person should want their fellow's happiness and honor as much as their own, because they, the other, really is themselves, and that is why we are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Here we are blurring, we are blurring the self and the other. Indeed, our pathway toward happiness may be alleviating suffering for the other. This is not, um, um, this is not Norman Lamb, it's just quoted there. But um, he's quoting the Viktor Frankl idea where he used to say in the name of Kierkegaard that the door to happiness opens outwards. By that he meant that the best cure for psychic pain was to care more about the other's pain. That too I learned from the survivors. Friends, we are taught that, oh, if I'm in pain, I need more self-care. I need more therapy. I need more exercise. I need more things that make me feel good. Right? And Viktor Frankl argues, no, no, if you're struggling, okay, there might be some self-care involved, nothing against therapy and, and other things. But the, the real cure to suffering is caring for the other. Our healing comes in its intertwined nature with the healing of the other. So friends, to conclude, perhaps the Edenic sin of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is that human beings came to see all morality as binary, good and evil. Perhaps that's the sin. Not that they ate from the tree, but by eating from a tree of good and evil, now they live in the binary. Oh, there's good and evil. Now there were only absolutes, but no paradox. 
Is it better that humans were created or not created? Perhaps this binary question forcing us toward a monolithic answer is itself flawed in our time. But even as we reject a binary perspective, we dare not become relativists or worse, become completely confused on what is evil. As the prophet Isaiah warns, woe unto them who say of evil it is good and of good it is evil, that change darkness into light and light into darkness, that change bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. Okay, friends, thank you for, uh, for, for engaging. I would love to hear your questions and thoughts, agreements and disagreements. And whether you're with the angels or with God or humans. <laughs> okay, let's start with Della, Della's point in the chat. Thank you, Della, for that. What if our repentance as a society, which demands that each of us do our part, is the thing that affects our collective fate? What should we do then? What if our repentance as a society, which demands that each of us do our part, is the thing that affects our collective fate? What should we do then? Okay, beautiful. I love that. I think this is something that Rav Cook himself raised. Rav Cook raised us that tshuva was always expressed as an individualistic phenomenon. And Rav Cook talked about collective tshuva, um, that the, the Jewish people collectively can repent. Of course, we see this in the High Holidays idea, the idea that we are judged as a nation, but we are also kind of embraced um, individually, that the world is judged on Rosh Hashanah. It's not just that in, each individual is kind of assessed or assesses themselves, but the world itself is judged. And so there is a collective fate. That's what we saw by Noah's Ark. Yet the Noah's Ark story is that we're going to judge the collective. So too by Sodom and Amurah, by Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole city is going to be judged. There is a notion of the individual and the collective. And friends, this is one of the other reasons why we care about societal welfare. We don't just care about it from self-interest because I live here. We don't just care about it because we're interconnected. And if, if you don't have clean air, then I don't have clean air, right? Um, but we also care about it because we understand our collective fate, our collective destiny, our collective teshuva. We care about the moral nature of our society, uh, not only from a place of empathy and a place of self-interest, but also from a sense that, that like it is all interconnected, our collective teshuva. Um, and, and contagious. And so it's a beautiful question, Della. Um, what should we do then? And then I think that's actually a fundamental Jewish question, this sense of like, of how much do we say, um, my religious experience is about me. I'm here for my own meditation, my own prayer, my own connection to the divine, my own intellectual stimulation. And how much do we say actually, like, I, I need to call out others. I need to change my community. I need to change out, change the world because we have a collective fate and I can't be a bystander um, because part of my religious experience is fundamentally about the collective, not about the individual. And here we have very different orientations. I know very individualistic Jews who experience Judaism and spirituality existentially. It's about me and the divine. It's about me and my experience. And I know others who are very much collectivists. It is about the community, it is about the nation, it is about the country, it is about the Jewish community, it is about what we do together. Okay, if I have a meaningful experience, great. You know, that, that's a cherry on top, but it's not about my experience, like it's about the collective. Okay, thank you, Della, for that. Hi, Scott. Yeah, just to follow up that, um, 
to make sure I understand this right. So the idea that repentance precedes humanity means that God sort of anticipated and even built into the system that humans would uh, at various points fall short, sin. And so there's like this release valve to kind of remedy that, mitigate that. Is that the right way to think about yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, that, that's great, Scott. Thank you so much for that. Yes, exactly. That, um, you know, and that when we look at the Garden of Eden, um, we might say that, you know, this is not actually, I mean, you know, um, this is not surprising or unexpected, but built into the system, right? Humans cannot live in the Garden of Eden. Humans cannot choose to not eat from the tree. Humans can, must live in that world. And humans built into the human enterprise is not only the inevitability of flaws and imperfection something that people along their life journey uh, continue to mature in embracing and becoming comfortable with their own flaws and imperfections. It, it is not only that the flaws and imperfections are built into the human condition. It is also that, uh, what did you say, release valve? Um, yeah. it, is, it is that the corrective mechanisms are already there, right? The, the, that, that as a sign of love, right? It's almost like as a sign of love, you don't, um, you don't give birth to a baby and be like, you're perfect and have no problems. You, you say, this is going to be a hard journey in life. And like, I'm going to be there to catch you when you fall and correct you when you stumble. And that's built into this existence. It is a sign of love. That's like, I am already offering you an opportunity for correction. Now that's on the practical side, on the practical side that we are given that loving embrace of our imperfections and opportunity for growth. On the conceptual side, it means that, it, it, it may mean that, um, uh, that in a sense that what the existentialists say, Sartre and Beauvoir and Camus, uh, but Sartre in particular, that existence precedes essence, right? That, the, 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 um, uh, that our existence is what is fundamental to the human enterprise more than any essence. Right, if you think about that. And that is to say, our potentiality, our potentiality is what makes us humans more than our actuality, right? Um, it is our potentiality, which is what makes us godlike, right? And that is to say, God does not have an essence. God is infinite potential. And what makes humans godlike is that we exist in the realm of potentiality, right? which is to say we, God is in a process of becoming, that would be heretical to some traditional thinkers to say, but in process theology, one would say God is evolving, God is becoming, that makes God greater because divinity is not set and contained, but something that continues to be expansive, just like people who think about galaxies talk about the, 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 the universe is expanding, expanding um, in, its, in, its, in its continuation, um, and so, too, the human soul is not like this seed that is sitting in the earth with the potential to grow and die. It is, it is a seed that is growing. It is a seed that is not contained in the earth. It is, it is, it is connected to the realm of potentiality. And, um, uh, and so how amazing that in Jewish theology, this is primordial, that before humans exist in the flesh, we exist in that realm of, of becoming. Does that make it, Scott, what do you think of that? That's a big idea. 
I think I, <laughs> I need some time to process yeah. that. One. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> thank you. I like it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yes, Lauren. What a mixed bag human beings are, eh? Um, <laughs> you know, on the light side, I think we're here to look after the cats because that's what I do. But um, a few things bothered me when you're talking about social construct. I mean, it's, I think it's such a dangerous idea because, you know, it's part of the post-truth that nothing is real and that's so damaging. And so, you know, leading to um, anarchy and mistrust and everything that would be terrible for human beings as a collective, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It, okay, it's, great. It's terrifying. Okay, so, so yeah, let's unpack that a little bit because there are both very responsible and very smart philosophers who talk about social construct and there are populists on the far left and the far right who, who use the malleability of truth to their advantage. They basically say on the far left and the far right, everything's a conspiracy theory. You can't trust anyone, right? Just follow me and I will be your pathway to liberation. You don't need to think, you can't trust any of the data, right? And, uh, and this is very scary. This is very scary um, and, um, uh, and very concerning. Um, and so bracketing those who will, who will, who will do that, um, that essentially argue there are no essences. Um, every truth can be renamed and reclaimed um, as such. Um, and we can get into the details of what that looks like on the far left and far right if you want. Um, and yet we have to embrace at least some level of the truth in terms of what the philosophers are pushing back against. What they were pushing back against was the idea that, um, that we have access to absolute truth and that our naming and assignment of identities is itself an, an ontological truth, right? right? You are a man and this is what this means. You are a woman and this is what this means, right? You are a Jew or you're a Muslim, you're, right? You are, you are fundamentally different as an Arab or as a, as a Colombian, right? You are, and so this assignment of identities and essences, and then they started with the, what, what, what the philosophers moved to in, 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 identi in identifying social constructs was saying, huh, like how much of this is actually true? What we have been told about what people are and what reality is, and you know, to, to kind of frame it in the usual critique, how many you know, well-off American straight cisgendered white men were the ones defining truth and reality for everyone else? And so let's expand that and open up um, whether all of that really was true actually, and Christian, throw Christian in there too, that, uh, in terms of who was, who was kind of the, the power broker of truth. Um, who were the philosophers of the 18th and 19th century? I mean, who, who were those people? And so I think we can kind of embrace both. The idea that um, we have to uphold a respect and integrity of truth, and at the same time, um, complicate um, and stir the pot with the expansive nature um, and, and, and the subjective filter process of what is true and who defines that, and how much of that truth is a construct of our era and nation and uh, time period, and how much of it um, is something that's actually eternal. Yeah, Cheryl. 
I, I'm very glad that Lauren brought that up just to follow up on what she said, because yeah. I had made notes about um, the essence versus the uh, social construct. I mean, it, formally, you, uh, you were born and you were a specific gender, and that's how you were, that's your social construct, what, that's your essence, and then your social construct was to live your life as that gender that you were you you're presenting you're presenting or uh you know or your race your race for that matter um but uh I, i'm i'm over here i was are kind of arguing with myself because originally when i wrote the notes i believed that being you know be, being born a specific gender or a specific race presented as an absolute that was an absolute whereas being a jew was not is not an absolute that's not that's not an absolute but um one further thing i just heard this uh i don't know if anybody else did this uh interview with deborah lipstadt and um uh rabbi feinstein interviewed deborah lipstadt and uh, what she was talking about was very much what you and lauren were just addressing and and, and that is that any more facts are construed as opinions now there, there are no absolute facts. If you say this is black and this is white, then the response is, well, that's just your opinion. So, I mean, everything is totally turned upside down because now you can, there, there's a book called The Vanishing Half, which I, I don't know if anybody um, is familiar with it, but it's as a black, uh, it's a community of very, very light-skinned um, people in um, Louisiana lives outside of New Orleans. It was a community of light-skinned black people. And they started their own community because they saw themselves as being separate and totally different and not integrated. So this was their truth. Their truth was that some, they, they considered themselves black for the most part, but some of them were trying to pass as, you know, live their lives as white because you don't see that as you know you see, you don't see that you you see in mixed race couples most for the most or mixed race person the people identify as black because that's the most presented and obvious and visual um d definition of who they are so i i mean all of these absolutes which were formerly absolutes except for the jewish part i've always that's why i've always been very um concerned when somebody say the Jewish race. Well, it's not. Yeah. And you know, that it's, it's always concerned me. So I'm glad that okay. you brought That's that. awesome, Cheryl. That's awesome. There's so much there. Okay, just a few thoughts. <clears throat> okay, first, and then we'll go to Michael. I see Michael's hand up also. So, so firstly, you know, it's very interesting in the gay rights community, as you know, um, in, the, in, the, in the gay rights community for a long time, um, the advocacy point on nature and essence was I didn't choose this. God made me this way. God defined my sexual orientation, my desire. It is my essence that I'm gay. Whereas the women's rights community in many ways went the opposite way. Don't tell me my essence. Like God did not create my essence any different. And the same thing in the racial justice community. Because I'm black, don't tell me I'm fundamentally anything different than a white person. So that's very interesting. If I'm gay, I say, no, God made me gay. I am different, right? And in the women's rights or racial justice work, right, it was actually God didn't make me anything any different. 
that this is all this is all social. Now, now some of that is changing, and that th those discourses are complicated and are changing. Now, in the gay rights community, since it's been so accepted in America, I mean, a, just a huge change in the last decade. Now, many are actually saying, "Oh, maybe there was an element of choice for me here. I can pinpoint that choice. This wasn't actually my nature, or it even changed." Um, and so, too, women's rights advocates who say, "No, I am fundamentally different." as a woman, again, going back to the trans community, who said, I am different having been, yes, you assigned me male, but I am female in my essence. Or again, going back to the woman who said, I was born black, I am black. And so there is this, this interesting relationship to choice and creation. And, but going to your, your amazing point about fact and opinion, you know, my daughter in second grade comes home and, and talks about, Let's say in 2020, she would say, oh, someone in my school during the election was um, said their family really supports politician X. I won't name who that politician is, politician X. And, and I would say, oh, you should tell, I know you're probably not supposed to tell your second grader this. I'd say, well, you should tell them that their, their family is wrong because here's why, because politician X believes in A, B, and C. So you should correct them so they understand. And my daughter would correct me. She said, no, no. This is their opinion. They have a right to their opinion. And I say, no, no, they have the facts wrong. So we had this whole understanding with a secondary conversation. What is the element in politics that is open to opinion? And what are, what are facts that actually we can't allow to be jeopardized in that debate? And so she's grappling with that. When I, when I worked with students in Harlem in a doctoral research experiment, we had three categories of truth. We try to get the students to understand. The lowest level of epistemology was, um, uh, the, the uh, realm of, of everything is um, absolute. Basically, there's one truth and it's right, you have it right or wrong, right? That, that's what every young child understands, there's one truth, right? Um, this, a slightly more, the, the next advanced stage is a relative notion of truth, which is more advanced, right? Oh, I understand, I, Johnny and Elizabeth are on a fight in class. Here's his truth, here's her truth. There are different experiences of what happened. Okay, it's relative. But then the stage we want them to get them to is neither the absolute nor the relative, but what we call the evaluativist. The evaluativist claim where you can evaluate truth says there are absolutes and there are relatives. And um, we have to go through a process of investigation to understand, right? What is the higher realm of truth here, right? If there's an empirical process, there's a debate process. And I think that America is struggling with this right now. Um, America is struggling right now with this idea uh, around truth. I mean, if you look at the idea of science, the rejection of science in, in, by many, right? What is ultimately true? Um, who are the authorities of, of what is safe in society? Um, and so just to go to your last point, then we'll go to Michael there, which is, are Jews fundamentally different? This is a big question. Now, I know we would all reject what the Kuzari says and what the Tanya says, that Jews have a, have a superior soul. Um, I suspect most of us or all of us would reject this as a problematic theology, um, that Jews in their essence have a superiority. However, we need not reject the idea, um, although we may, that Jews are fundamentally different on a spiritual DNA level, of course, not on a human DNA level. Well, actually, in terms of genes, um, Jews, Jews uh, will have differences. Just look at genetic diseases that are in the Ashkenazi world, right? But on a spiritual DNA level, are Jews different? Is a Jewish soul different 
than a Gentile soul. And here I think we can have an interesting debate. Um, uh, it, it, once we dismiss the idea of superiority, we say different. Um, and, uh, and, what, and what does that even look like? The idea of Jews having a different essence fundamentally. Um, uh, and, and what is happening in a, in a conversion process? Is a conversion to Judaism a legal um, social construct? Um, is it a soul transformation? Is it a collective community um, under um, contract? Right? What is actually happening if someone says, um, I am now Jewish? And what does it mean that in Jewish theology you can never leave, right? If you're a Christian and you say, I'm no longer Christian, I don't believe X, Y, and Z, I'm out. Okay, you're not a Christian anymore. You, you're allowed to leave, right? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, but if you're a Jew, you can't leave. You say, I deny God, I deny the community, I hate it all, I don't want to do it. Okay, you, you, we're still going to invite you for Pesach Seder, past the crane, you know? <laughs> you can't get out, you can't get out. And so um, it'd be like saying, I was born in America, I deny it. Okay, so you don't have an American identity, but you can't deny that you're born in America, you're still of American nationality from the rest. Okay, we only have five minutes left. Um, so Michael, let's hear from you next. I think that it all goes back to the fundamental question of, of existence and, and, it, and it goes to a scale of how we respond to that. But, you know, is, is there, I think a lot of us, some people would say existence is a mere physics, chemistry, these things happen, infinite space, infinite time, there's an accident, we happen to be here, there, there is no meaning beyond that. But then there's, I think, religion, I think philosophy, a lot of this is looking within and saying, no, there is a reason. There's a model, a view of the universe and how we fit into it. So the questions about my, but then the scale, my, per, you know, what am I going to have for dinner? Then up to, you know, what, what am I going to do in the next 20 years? And why do I exist? Then why does... And these levels, and I think we turn as we get higher and higher to, to, to look at a meaning, a, 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 a proof or, or something to reassure us of this greater significance. Going back to that ultimate question, is all of this have no meaning because it's simply a, a, not an accident, but just something occurred randomly in, in the infinity of time and space? Beautiful, Mike. Thank you for that. So because we only have four minutes left, I want to see if there's one or two other people who want to share anything before I wrap us up. Um, uh, Yehuda or Matthew or Eric, um, anyone want to share anything? So um, I like what Michael said, because I was thinking too, you know, it's like, this question relates to why are we here? Are we here just because God wanted some company? What, where, what are we doing? So, and, and the other thing is that um, I still think in the LGBT question that I was born this way, not that, not that it's a choice. So, and, and I think that essence, when I came to my conversion, I had been looking my whole life to find the right path, to find what spoke to me and what answered my questions. And, and that's how I got here. So, so, but that's my question is what are we doing here? I think that's, <laughs> that's really it, so. Okay, great, Yehuda, so, and I'm gonna come back to Mike too. Um, uh, so Yehuda, so one sexual orientation 
um, is, in, in your belief, um, uh, innate, born that way. How about Jewish? In your conversion process, do you feel you have a Jewish soul, which is different because you converted? Or do you feel you're fundamentally the same person who just embraced a new belief system and practice system? I think that was always within me. I was always looking for it my ah, whole life. Ah. Right. So Yehuda is channel, channeling the Kabbalah that converts already had a Jewish soul. It's kind of like the trans conversation. I am a woman trapped in a man's body, right? Yes. I was. It was always there. I just had to uncover it. So too, someone who converts, they already had kind of a, a that, that Jewish soul, so to speak, a pintalyid, um, and yet they had to uh, they had to discover it. Okay, so let me say one thing about Mike's point, and then I I'm, I'm sorry, I have to wrap up two minutes, five minutes early today, which is that I have a chavruta, if you will, who, a study partner, who he said to me uh, just a few weeks ago, he said, look, I really don't believe in any meaning to life, any purpose to life. I just, you know, I'm, 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 I, I think the science is right. Like, it's just an accident we're here, right? There is no God. There is nobody determining a purpose or meaning. Like, eat, drink, and be merry. Like, I just can't come to any other conclusion. I'm going to try to make a lot of money. I'm going to try to have a good time. I don't want to get married. I just want to have fun dating women. And um, I'm just going to uh, have a good time because, like, you can't really prove to me anything else. And I was torn because I felt like on the one hand, I think that's a really reasonable conclusion. Given the facts we have, I think that's a really fair conclusion. And in my own judgment, it's a really sad conclusion to come to that there's no ultimate meaning, there's no ultimate purpose, um, there, that you know, there is no ultimate order, that, that the goal of life is happiness and the pursuit of pleasure. Um, and so I, I, I invite us to think about that's a good, that's a good test case for relativism. Do we say, you know what, that's a fair conclusion. Enjoy your, eat, drink, and be merry if that was your child or your sibling or your friend. Or do we say, you know what, I really think that that's kind of a destructive conclusion of how we construct the world. Yes, there's a whole pluralism around theology, but we need to embrace some level of purpose and collective meaning that we're here to combat suffering, we're here to cultivate empathy, that there is fundamentally some compassionate nature to the universe, um, some notion of divinity. And I leave us with that question, friends. Is it better we're here or not? I don't know. I really believe it's better we're here. I believe it's better we're here. I think the human enterprise is fundamentally meaningful and full of purpose um, and that we are charged to make the world better. But we're not going to get into purpose today because that's one of our future debates. What is the purpose of human existence? We will see that debate coming up soon. What is our debate next week? I need to give you a heads up before I say goodbye for the day. Our, our debate next week, if um, you are joining us, is... Um, uh, truth versus compromise. Truth versus compromise. And I apologize. We, I was going to put in the chat over here today some changes we have to our schedule, but I didn't get around to it. Um, and so we have some changes in our schedule in the upcoming weeks, which hopefully you received that email. If you didn't, please let us know, and we will update you on those changes in our schedule uh, that are coming up. We hope to see you next week. Have a great rest of your day.